Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Folks, welcome once again to the Anthony Gordon Show. One of the things that I realized growing up through my formative years in South Africa is using humor as a, a way of taking the sting out of life and looking at life in a certain perspective. So my special guest is a, is a good friend and a, I consider um, certainly one of the most solid and steady comedians uh, in the country who's appeared on, on on everything that's in anything in terms of uh, the, on TV, from, from Seinfeld to Letterman to Leno to Carson, and, and after calling me for many, many months, begging me to be on the show, here he is on the Anthony Gordon Show. Mark Schiff, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's absolutely a pleasure. And uh, I had the pleasure, because it's a fairly new podcast, you. I had the pleasure of listening to uh, your Jane Seymour interview. Oh, you did? Spectacular. And she Thank was you. talking all about the casting couch. Yep. Which, um, so far, you've not uh, asked me on to it. Well, we just began. I so, know. Uh, but, uh, give me a few uh, few minutes. So, And you made a very good point on that podcast. It's very important to, uh, rather than spend money, to give money away. You remember you said that to her? I do did, I did, I did definitely remember. And I can use $25,000. All right. So we're going to get... Uh, I made a note note to self. Yeah, because I think you're going to be happier as a human being if you give me twenty five thousand. And you said it on the air. I did. How you know, important I, it was. I've got to walk the talk. You are. You really, and you even used that line yeah, about her. You walked the talk. You said so. I want to see <laughs> a check for twenty five thousand dollars. I'll feel better. You feel better. That's but it's true. That's uh, this very therapeutic. So uh, that's the end of the show, Mark. You've been terrific. <laughs> um, now I'll tell you one. Th- there's a number of things that we've known each other for a while, and I think there's a few things that stro- that sort of. Uh, shine out and I'm, and I think one of the things about this podcast is to be a little bit different to um, broach certain subjects that I'm sure you've never been asked before and I keep in my mind's eye that the uh, the listener primarily the millennial generation most of our uh, 92 million listeners are sort of in that age cohort <laughs> so I looked at one of the things I saw and I, I realized that perhaps there's an overlap in the way we grew up is you, it seems like your your late mom uh, was an anxious person, was a nervous person. <laughs> if you compound that by being an only child, I, I don't know if this is correct. Am I correct in saying that humor for you um, has been a, a, a tool to navigate through what sounds like, you know, some challenging times as well? Yeah, absolutely. As a child, my mother was uh, difficult and uh, – but – she gave me a career because I was able to go through all that and kind of make fun of it. You know, my mother was a very confused woman. Actually, she didn't think that I had any idea who she was. She didn't know? She didn't think I knew who she was because she would say to me, who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> I mean, she would say, do you, do you have any idea who I am? I don't think you know. And she didn't think I knew who I was. 
Because she looked at me and go, who do you think you are? So you either had to become a comedian or yeah, a therapist. Yeah, very the rest confused of your life. family like it. that. Very yeah. confused. <laughs> it was a binary. So growing up, uh, but it, it was difficult. It was, and my father didn't say much. He was very quiet. You know, Jewish husband just walking around in his underwear, scratching his head. Yeah, that uh, comes with the terrain. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so you making it up for him in terms of you? Uh, yeah, you're out then. I think that that interesting thing about my parents. So as long as you're on, both my parents sure. are gone. Um, my father died first. Your dad, your father died, okay. He died in 88. And um, the way it works sometimes, my mother lived another 10 or 12 years after that. And I had things to work out with my mother. My father was, we didn't have anything to work out. I knew he loved me. He cared about me. So when he went. But he wasn't a complicated guy. It sounds like he. Yeah, it was just there and there was love and it was very simple. Yep. But my mother was complicated. So I had another 10 or 12 years to have her to work some of those things out. If she had gone first, it would have been a little more difficult. So that's very interesting because I did mention uh, on when I spoke to Matt Barnes and he had, uh, I think, I believe he's, he is, um, one of his parents had a tremendous impact on him. And I remember speaking to Matt about just making sure that there's not anything left unsaid because it impacts a person for life, you know? Right. So it sounds like, uh, you know, well, I remember the last thing my grandfather said to me, you know, he was in the hospital and, and dying. It was very, and I went to see him and he put his arms out. He put me close to him. Yeah. Then a little closer. And then he said, you're coming with me. <laughs> so I just got the hell out of there. Really, <laughs> I don't blame was really <laughs> that was the last thing I remember. Exactly. The rest is a blur. So, so here's what I, what I remember um, when I did, I did a, uh, quite a bit of stand-up comedy in South Africa is, and I, and I want to ask if you can relate to this. Do do you feel you always have to be on? And may your comedy have an Aaliyah in the show. Yeah, may it rest in pieces. Yeah. Um, again, the, no, I don't have to you, always be on. Absolutely not. So you can you can uh, you know go out for dinner with your wife. People recognize you, yeah. and you don't feel like boom I'm as like, they come yeah. up to you. Mm, no, you, you know when you they come to, up, I, I try to be in a good mood. Yeah, but you don't but have to come out and Jerry be hysterical. And, <laughs> you yeah, know, none no, of that over, no. overkill stuff. No, none of that. No. So that's a good segue into the following. And we were chatting about this before, you know, we went uh, live here before the studio audience, and that is how difficult is it in this generation to make people laugh, to be certainly one of the most reputable comedians and not use expletives, be clean, uh, not drop F-bombs. You know, the millennial generation, it's it's the new new, and I – I think it's refreshing, and then frankly, right. one of the reasons why, you know, I, I think that you uh, you have a unique gift. Right, working clean is is harder. It just is, and uh, it's interesting because I'm in a business where I don't have to. Right. If anyone can get away with with dropping, I can say anything I want. Yeah. On you know, not every gig offers me that ability, but the club certainly the, on the club circuit. All, all anything. All. When I came up, my heroes all worked clean. Who, and, I was going to ask you. Tell me who had the biggest influence on your on, on your junior. Well, form. there was uh, Woody Allen. There was um, uh, Alan King, of course. There was Bill Cosby before we knew he was, sure. you know, what he got into later on. And mm-hmm. uh, these guys all were clean. They were brilliant at what they did. But then came cable TV, where you could start cursing and doing things, and uh, it was it all hell broke loose. So, now, a- certain people. Do it, and and it works for them. Like Richard Pryor grew up 
in a whorehouse in Peoria. In Peoria. I was going to say, of all people, he, he's being him. Yeah. So when he talked like that, that's who he was. That's what he heard growing up. But when you have a comedian that grew up in a uh, upper class family and they're just cursing their head off, it's uh, they just do it. It's George Carlin said said sometimes it's just a cheap way out. It's funny you say it. I remember when I, for a period of time in South Africa, did uh, you know did some somewhat of the comedy the the club circuit. When you're up there, and I'm sure you can't ever relate to this, and uh, you say something, and it either is it either bombs or the response is a, a little more neutral, it's tempting to ratchet up at that point. Yeah. And ratcheting it up is an easy way it is to go off color or to to start using, you know, the yeah. four-letter words. Well, everybody bombs in the beginning. Everybody does. I bombed for the first five years, every That's, single night. And uh, it, it was horrific. It's funny to ask us to comedian, but are you serious, right? Every single night, because nobody, you, nobody knows how to do this. You know, every comedian is completely. There's no school for this. Nobody can teach you. It's all your your audience is who tells you if it's funny or it's not. Nobody. So, what made you the first few years bombing, bombing? How did you get up there? Have the intestinal fortitude after, you know, having. Uh, well, yeah. you, you get a joke all of a sudden out of nowhere that works. And, so yeah. the, everything around it doesn't work. But you, when you get to that one piece, it, then the, all it. of a sudden there's a second one. And then there's a third one. And you go, yeah, it seems it's moving along here, even though it takes an incredibly uh, long amount of time. So it, would you say there's a lot of attrition in the stand-up comedy business because what does it do to, uh, to a person's self-esteem on the journey? You, you feel like a putz. Yeah, it's, 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 it is painful. I've gotten off stage. One guy said to me, an owner of a club said to me, you know, I'll tell you what's going on with you. You have no personality and your material is garbage. Other than that, he was very sweet to you. Yeah. And I still came back the next night and did shows and, you know, people say these things, but then as you get better, people start saying the most unbelievably nice things. Which, which is, which is going to be the flip side of, of what keeps you energized. You know, it's, People don't realize they there's a romantic delusion about the life of a comic. It's one of the most difficult disciplines on the planet because it's you and the audience. That's it. It's when I when I go to get a gig, you know, I send out my uh, contract and my writer, and they say, "What do you want? What do you want? What do you need?" You know, so I say, "I need a stool, a glass of water, <laughs> and a microphone, and then just leave me alone." It's incredible. That's and, all I need. And, you know, some speakers with decent sound and then goodbye. I'll take over from there. But there's no way to hide. No. A couple of shows, I remember one I did, it was so awful that um, I was supposed to go do a meet and greet after and I refused to come out from behind the curtain. And I sat in the dark in the back. It was completely black back there. And the woman just walking around going, Mark, 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 are you here? Are you here? I go, uh, yeah, I'm here. Go, come on out and say hello to people. I don't want to go. <laughs> it was so humiliating. And would you say, if we look at, uh, and we're going to talk about your relationship with Jerry Seinfeld, all the the the, the really huge names today, do you think that that's a, a rite of passage that Jerry went through, that Kevin Hart went through, that, 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 that uh, Eddie Murphy, you know, I don't know if there's a shortcut. There is no shortcut. It takes 10 to 15 years to become a good comedian. There is no shortcut. There are people who think they have a handle on it, but uh, they, they don't because you, you don't get to know who you are up there. Very good point. Because you, what you're doing is you're writing, you're directing it, you're you're speaking, you're acting everything out, 
you're learning mic technique, you're learning audience handling. You know, you you there's a million things to learn. And I think there's a, a, a tremendous psychology up there. Just how do you deal with a heckler? How do you, you know? Well, we're trained in that. You know, I mean, I don't mean trained by somebody else. Yeah, you yeah, just so you, do it. When you first start, you you everybody works in places where people drink and yell out stuff. Right. And uh, one night, one guy yelled out something to me. You know, a lot of times they try to impress their girlfriends. And and if you can neutralize the comic, you're. Uh, yeah, you're you're you know I'm funny than everybody thinks they're funny than him. Exactly. But this one guy, I I, I hit him back really hard. And uh, he came towards me on the stage and uh, came after me. And Physically? I, yeah. And I ran out. It happened so fast that the, the bouncer didn't even know what was happening. I ran out and he ran out after me. Oh, my gosh. And one night, Richard Lewis was on stage, the great Richard sure. Lewis, and somebody came up with a knife and cut his microphone cord. That's bizarre. Yeah. So it uh, doesn't happen too often. But uh, but then on the other hand, you know, people say, one night, one night a guy said to me, you know, I forgot to take my heart medicine and you were it. You know, you really... In lieu of my, my medication, you know, I'm going to just take your heart. No, you, you meant, you know, he just felt better. You know, he just... Just, uh, just yeah. nailing a guy. Yeah, Unbelievable. Just, it's, so so what, what, what was there, what was the self-talk, what was there inside of you that kept you going through its grinding? I mean, I can... I'm, I had an epiphany when I was 12 years old. My parents, I'm an only child. Right, that I saw. And uh, I'm not sure what that means. My mother said to me, when I was born, I broke the mold. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, because she just kind of left it. It broke the mold. I think that that you're, you're most comedians at your level are out of the box thinkers. You're a contrarian. I think it's a huge compliment. Okay, I'll, I'll accept that. Thank you, mom. <laughs> so, um, twelve years old, my parents their their anniversary, wedding anniversary, and they went to a nightclub called the Boulevard Nightclub in Queens. Where were you born, Mark? You were- I was born in the Bronx. Okay. The Bronx. The only borough with the word the in it. Is the Bronx. There's no the Manhattan, the Queens, the Staten true. Island. There's the Bronx. The Bronx. Don't know why. So uh, my parents said, we're going to a nightclub tonight. You want to come with us? And I was 12. And they took me to this mafia nightclub called the Boulevard Nightclub on Queens Boulevard in Forest Hills. Rico Park, actually. Yep. Opening the show, and I'd never seen a comedian before in my life, Opening the show is Rodney Dangerfield. This is your first exposure 12 to 12 years old. 12 and, and years just, old. And just to get to uh, paint the scenario for the, the 97 million viewers, it doesn't sound like you grew up in a home where humor and wit was was part of the, you know, the it wasn't, fabric. You know, there, my, my mother was funny. My father was very deadpan. Yeah. But there wasn't a lot of jokes flying around. I don't think they had any comedy albums. Gotcha. Stuff like that, like some families did. Sure. So you're there, you are 12 so years old. The lights go down. It's all adults. It's a beautiful, like, real nightclub, like you, you see in the movies. Sure. I mean, little candles. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome tonight, opening the show, comedian Rodney Dangerfield. People clap. He busts through the curtain, sweating already. He hasn't even said a word. He's sweating. He's got the tie. And he starts telling these jokes. And people are laughing. And I see, I'm watching my parents laugh like I've never seen them laugh before in their life. So this is already a, a shock to you. That- this is unbelievable. I never knew they could laugh like this. And I'm laughing at jokes. I don't even know what he's talking about. I'm 12. He, he's doing jokes about his wife. He goes, my wife is like a car. Sometimes I can't get her to turn over in the morning. I don't know what that means. <laughs> you know, I have no idea. Just to be polite. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm laughing. And anyway, I said to myself right there, that's what I want to do. At the age of 12. 12, sitting there in the nightclub. I said, I'm going to become a comedian. 
That's cr- I mean, I think if your parents took you to a mud wrestling at the age of 12. Yeah. You know, Sumo wrestling, I'd be 700 pounds now. <laughs> so you, you, that was the epiphany? Yeah. I told my parents when we left there, I said, I'm, I'm going to become a comedian. And they said, yeah, yeah, sure. Because, you know, at 12, you want to be a fireman, a doctor, or, you know, a crack dealer, or whatever you want to be. Exactly. Depends where you live. So I want to be, and I never stopped thinking about it. I started getting comedy albums after that. Okay. I, so your, your formative years as a teenager. Yeah. That's incredible. Started getting into people like Robert Klein a little later on, watching the comedians on Ed Sullivan. And uh, at 18, I went to, uh, I started going to clubs at 16, 17, just to watch the just comedians. Watch, yeah. And I said, what do you have to do to become a comedian? And I remember this one guy, Ed Bluestone, said, this is what you do. You write jokes, you memorize them, and you get up on stage. That's the whole thing. He said, I said, nothing else? I said, nothing else? He goes, you write jokes, you memorize them, and you get up on stage. It's perfect advice until you have to do it yourself. But that's exactly what you have to do. That's That's what you had to do then. That's what you have to do now. If you want to be a comedian, you write jokes, you memorize them, you get up on stage, and you go. So I said, okay. At 18, I got up. What was your, do you remember your very first gig? It was terrible. Absolutely horrific. And I bombed so bad, I didn't get up on stage again for five years. Are you serious? I was mummified. Absolutely frozen solid, insecure. Well, let's get a little graphic here. How, when you say you bombed, bomb can mean, you know, there was, it was dead was fun. So, yeah, people, I, people booed you. No, they didn't boo. Threw paraphernalia at you. I don't know what I was expecting. Yep. I'd seen a lot of other comedians getting huge, huge laughs. And you thought, hey, you know. I thought maybe I could, because uh, my friends thought I was funny and my, you know, aunt, I had an aunt that used to laugh at everything I said. Yeah, you, she was also a catalyst in getting me here because she she just thought I was the funniest person in the world. So she's great for your ego. Yeah. So I got up, nothing happened, and I was too scared to get up again for five years. So you you, you seriously had a, uh, a neutralizing reaction. You could have gone the other way. Yeah. I could have uh, never, but I kept thinking about it and kept watching comedy and keep going to clubs. I lived in Manhattan. Okay. And uh, I started going to acting school, dance lessons. But never jettisoning your dream. This is this is all a way of getting back. Then five years later, I said, I got to try this again. Well, what, what, what were your folks saying during this journey? Um, Mark, you're a nice Jewish boy. You've got to become a doctor, a lawyer. Well, when I told my parents I want to be a comedian, they go, you know, it's so hard. You know, they said all the wrong things. Yeah. So you, which, which were the right things, actually. Because you went the other way. Yeah, they go... It's so hard, you know, you don't know anybody, you know, who are you to become a comedian? You know, because they know you is just... Yeah, yeah, because you're a kid and the joke's on you. Yeah, but I started doing it again and little by little I pieced it to, uh, together. Now, let me just jump ahead. By the way, just before you, just press pause, I'll, I'll tell you one thing I've realized in um, the podcast space and um, doing anything where, you know, people are listening, people relate to people who have similar life experiences i don't know too many people that haven't had setbacks and somehow people just see the end result the writing comes up there's mark with uh with with carson or leno and boom this this guy was born with uh clearly i've had uh, thousands of setbacks not hundreds that's uh, thousands of setbacks in this business everybody goes through it um so Anyway, later on, I became friends with Rodney Dangerfield. This who, is your hero at the age of 12. Well, this is your first... That's a, that's got a chance to meet him because I started becoming a comedian, and, I, and he started coming into the clubs. He would, he would work out new material. I sold him a joke, um, which I still have a copy of the check. That's and insane. then um, 
when he was dying, he was at UCLA Hospital, and his wife called me up, his, his, his last wife. So you became pretty close to him, Came very close to him. And she said, Mark, it looks like Rodney's going to pass tomorrow or the next day. Okay. If you want to say goodbye to him, go up to UCLA. She told me where he was. That's unbelievable. So I went up there, and he was in a private room. He was just in horrible shape. And uh, I had the pleasure to take his hand and do the Shema with him. That is uncanny. It was, you know, I, I, I don't know if he got it or what, but it took his hand and, uh, you know, the prayer, you sure. know, the... Uh, and uh, we did that together as best as I could. That's amazing, Mark. That's and wonderful. I thanked them for everything. And uh, if I didn't see him, I may never have done this. That's, I mean, I've I'm, I'm got a little bit of chills. That's an amazing story. Incredible. But uh, when you talk about setbacks, you know, I did The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Sure, I remember. And um, one of the things comedians have in common is they're angry. You can't come up with a comedy routine unless you're upset about something. You know, it's interesting. I had... Um an evening a few weeks ago, it was a hot solid dinner here. Jay Leno was the guest. Jay seems to be a guy who is, doesn't seem to be a guy with a chip on his shoulder. No, but he talks about stuff that bothers him. Yeah, no, that's true. You know what I mean? He's not hes not an angry, crazy yeah. person, but things have to bother you. Otherwise, exactly. I can't come out on stage and go, ladies and gentlemen, I made a lot of money this week. My wife is in good shape. She's... Uh, exercising, my blood count is great, my kids are doing well in college. <laughs> Thank you very much. Nobody's laughing. And you know? Mark Schiff, terrific. Yeah, yeah no, it doesn't go like that. So um, one night, talk about a setback, uh, the, the um, talent coordinator for The Tonight Show came in right. to see me in New York. This was uh, a long time ago. Do you remember how many times you were on Carson? Yeah, six with him. That's, a, that's, that's no slouchy number. No, it was nice. Um, so he came in to see me, and there was a bunch of other people he saw, and I got a standing ovation for my five minutes. The and, first time you were on, on Johnny Carson? No, I wasn't on. He just came in. The oh, oh, coordinator came in to see gotcha. a bunch of people to see if we were right for the show. Oh, I'm sorry. So um, wow. he saw me, saw some other people, and then uh, we're hanging around in the uh, by the bar, and he starts leaving. He talked to some people and didn't talk to me. So this was my angry period, you know? You sure? So he walked out. So I followed him out, and, and I said, Jim, how you doing? He goes, Mark, good, good to see you. I said, so what did you think of the set? He says, uh, it was really good, but it's, it's not right for Johnny. He, these guys buy for the person. Oh, sure. It's like, a, yeah, it's a, he it's goes, a formula. I, he goes, I know what Johnny likes, and it, 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 it's, it's, not Johnny. It, it's not Johnny's stuff. I, he goes, it was funny, but it's, uh, I said, but I got a standing ovation. It was, he goes, it's not, it's not what Johnny likes. And then he says, I'm sorry, and he turns around and walks away. And your, and bl your blood must have been boiling. I scream an obscenity at him. You know? Seriously? Yeah. Just scream. Send it at him. And he turns around and he points his finger at me and says, you will never, ever do The Tonight Show as long as I live. That's what he said. And he passed away the next day. An hour later, I killed him. So, um, that's a, that's a, and from that, from that incident until your first. So that was a setback. You call that I, a setback. setback. I would say that the, the I, door I, just closed in your face. I set myself back. I did, I did that to myself. By doing that, he did, it was nothing he did. He but get, put so, the toothpaste back in the tube after that. Seven years later, seven years, I'm in San Francisco in a nightclub, and uh, he comes walking in. Oh, he's still with Johnny? He's still with Carson? Yes, he's still, yeah, this guy had the job for like 15, 20 years, Jim McCauley. So okay, and he, he comes walking into San Francisco, and I said, uh, he goes, Mark, how you doing? And he had seen me around the clubs, you know, for years. 
never said anything to me, not a word. He says, how you doing? I said, good, what are you doing here? I said, so he goes, I'm here to see the guy that's opening for you. He said, I'm, I'm here to see him. And he goes, I'm free tonight. Do you mind if I stick around and watch you too? Because I have nothing to do. And it wasn't a sense of like, uh, what you said to me, do you remember what you... Not a word, not a peep. He sits down, watches the show, comes over to me after and goes, you got the show. That is an unbelievable story. Yeah, comes over, you got the show. He said, I want you uh, to call me on Monday. You'll be on in two weeks. So he, you, he didn't come to see you? No, he came to see somebody else. In hindsight, after that happened, he was absolutely right that I was not right for The Tonight Show seven years earlier. I was going to say, between the time between the, the time you... Those seven years matured me that I became right for the show. He was absolutely right. And if I had done the show too early, I never would have gotten back on. So that's a, he did you the biggest favor in the world. He did me biggest... And that's how a lot of things happen. They look like setbacks... Well, 100%, I believe that, 100%, we see yeah. it all the time. And I know you talk to Jane Seymour about that stuff, things Absolutely. that don't work out, and then all of a sudden they work out. That's been the case with me. Sometimes the worst things in the world turn out to be the best things. You turn your scars to stars. I, I always talk about you can either make your, either stepping stones or stumbling blocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know if your public persona is, is one of, um, if you give the, image of you being um, someone who's got a spiritual side. I know you as someone who um, is more observant in your Judaism. I love my Judaism. I love my people. I love my rabbi. I love wisdom. Can that, do you think that um, do you think that that could alienate some audiences? I mean, you've got to be true to yourself. Totally be true to yourself. But, but it, we live in a divisive world where, you know, people have the stereotypes of Arian, you know? I wouldn't alienate my audiences because, I mean, uh, I mean, certainly when I do the Jewish jobs, it, it sure. certainly doesn't. Um, although, although there was one time I got a phone call from a uh, reformed rabbi, nice man, but he wanted me to do a show that one time, a long time ago, it was uh, like 7 o'clock on Saturday night, and it was like a two-hour drive to get there. And it was still going to be the Sabbath for you, yeah. so. So I said, I can't get there. And he goes, ah, damn, Shabbos. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, I cut out the word that he actually used. Uh, I figured yeah. for a, uh, a younger yeah. audience. So um, it, it infuriated him. So, but I don't bring it into my act. I mean, I, I don't really talk about... Uh, yeah, I don't... Uh, I'm, I'm from an old school. I'm an entertainer. I think, I think you, not only you're an entertainer, I think you talk about life. I think you talk about things that everyone can relate to. And I think that that's made you... And I don't want to go to your head because the headset doesn't adjust. But I, I, I called a few people before the show, um, you know, reasonably prominent people. Nothing but good things, Mark, about well, you. No, I'm sorry, I'm, and I, you know me. I'm, I will tell you if, if people said you're complete. People say to me when I get off stage, they go, how do you know my wife? How do you know my kids? How do you know my parents? You know, because I do universal life stuff. There was a lady at the it's company. It's terrific. It's very, very, uh, it's few and far between in the world today. One of the most amazing things anybody ever said to me, there was this woman, um, it was actually Sam Kennison. I don't know if you remember yeah, him. Yeah, sure, I remember His girlfriend, uh, she was a uh, Chinese girl. Mm -hmm. She came from China, mainland China. I get off stage one night, and she'd been in the country a couple of years. And yeah. she said to me, um, she goes, you know, my mother lives in China. She lives, uh, she, she works in a rice paddy. She's never been out of China. How do you know my mother? 
Because it's amazing that. I think it, you have an ability to understand. That was amazing, the right? Of a human being. That's an amazing thing. It's amazing. How do you know my mother? I said, that well, is amazing. I was over there one night. <laughs> yeah. But. Uh, so, so I think, I think that there is some common denominator in you and one of your very dear friends, Jerry Seinfeld. I think that Jerry also um, takes the Mickey out of life um, and uses his God-given talent, um, you know, to help us get a different perspective. So I know you've been close to Jerry for many, many years, and you've uh, done shows with him. Still do. I was just with him in Long Beach last week. Oh, I saw, yeah, you saw I've been on the road with him for 15 years. So this is going to be a tough question. Uh, you, you, you might take the uh, head, head from Storm out, but it's been terrific. Um, you <laughs> you opened for Jerry, I know, in Israel. You, I mean, you've opened we went to Israel twice together. Uh, so I saw that. He so, said, if there's anybody that I've got to go to Israel with, it's you. Uh, it's very clear. He actually went one time by himself to do, when he was pushing his movie, uh, The Beast Story, and he called me from the wall in tears. He was so really? pleased and so happy to be there. That's an amazing story. I think he's a terrific, terrific, terrific person. And he's a person from, I don't know him like, like you do, but he seems to be a guy who's got, he's got certain beliefs and principles and doesn't really care about political correctness. If he's got, if he has the courage, he's got the courage of his conviction to, to take yeah. the road less travel at times. He does. And he's, he's a straight shooter. He seems a terrific guy. He's a great family guy. And we have a great tour because it's a very, Kosher Menchie tour. I, I get the sense. Backstage. I talk about it all the time. Nobody gets backstage. There's no women that get back. No, nothing. You know, I mean, it, it's no fooling around. There's no nothing. You don't get that impression. It's just the two of us. we got a producer that travels with us, Kevin. And uh, it's three guys hanging out. And we go from here to there to there to there. And um, there's no drugs. There's no, no it's drinking. A, it's, uh, that, 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 that's a, I think that's the attraction. It's I a, mean, three rabbis will look at us and go, how do they keep it so clean? I mean, these guys, it's unbelievable. <laughs> so, yeah. So he has, a, he has the, uh, the tough question. I look at you. I've known you for a while. You've played every single uh, major uh, TV show. You've been on every single major comedy platform. Obviously, Jerry has had, has had tremendous success. Is there ever a part of you that says, listen, I, bu- I bust my chops. I'm out there. Jerry has got this private jet. He's got, and I'm, you know, I, I've still got my, uh, you know, my, my second yeah. Antioto. Is, is there any part of you that says, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I have the skill. I've yeah. been out there. It's a hard thing. It, at one time, more so. But uh, what, did, what did the rabbi say? You know, who's some, a happy man? Some man who's, a, be who's happy with his lot, right? Exactly. Happy with what he has. And, it's not easy because human beings are human beings. Yeah. But I did turn that corner a while ago, and I, I made a pretty good turn. And it's not always perfect, but um, I'll give you an example. Last night, I went to see a comedian named Bill Burr. Yeah, you mentioned that. And you see, he's terrific. Spectacular is the word. He's a spectacular comedian. And in many ways, he's much sharper than I am. He's, he's, I don't think that is humanly possible. Well, this guy is, is, is really hit a stride here. He's 25 years younger than me. He's, he's, he's solid. What, what, what I haven't seen, but what's his what's the his, the theme of his material? Is well, it? it's not just his material; it's his commitment to it and who he is and what he does. But I'm I'm, I'm answering your question yeah, earlier. Sure. When I saw him, I didn't think, God, I you know I wish I was you know how can he have this and I don't have this. I was just happy That's a, that he was so good and that people were getting so much from him, and I was thrilled to be in a profession with this guy. 
you know, it's a, it's a, it speaks volumes, Mark, about the person that you are. If you can genuinely be happy for somebody else's success who's in the same calling as you. Yeah. I mean, because I know what I have. You know, I, I was thinking about it a little and I thought, you know, I got my wife, my kids, I got uh, my friends, my, you know, my community that is spectacular. You got, you're surrounded by blessing, Mark. I'm overpaid. I'm you're overpaid. definitely overpaid, but I yeah. think the difference is. And when I get that 25000 from you. Yeah, well, then really, it's over the top right there. So the, uh, do you, a few things about uh, the, the Jerry. Yes. What, what is it that, what is it that you think that it works with you and Jerry that he clearly, I mean, from what I read, insists that he travels with you? Okay. It's when it goes down to like two words, funny and trust. Okay. It's got to be the latter. He, okay. So I don't care how close I am to him. If I wasn't doing the job, I wouldn't have the question. job. There's, there's no... Because he's a businessman and he's got a brand. There's no charity in this he's, business. he's not giving this gig away. That's for sure. You know, to slouch. No, that, that, that is absolutely true. And then he can tell me anything he wants and it's, it stays with me. I'm not going to write a book or ever... So trust is huge. Yeah. So those two things, funny and trust, are, are, are everything. And I've been friends with him since the beginning. We started together in 1976. I saw that. So that, that's what really what triggered my question. When you start with someone... Um, and, and, you know, against on paper, someone, you know, if we, if we defining success as bank accounts, you know, he's probably got four or $5 more than you. I mean, loosely. Yeah. He's done very well for himself. Good for him. He seems to He used guy. to, uh, work at a place called Burger Brew. He was a waiter there. He used to drive a little moped type of thing and he sold light bulbs over the phone. Unbelievable. So that's the way it was. Um, nobody's worked harder than him. He's a Zen master. He's focused. He's on it. And he's, uh, he's just daily on it. And he writes every day and does the work that's necessary. And he has talent. So when you see him backstage. When I, when we go backstage, I'll tell you exactly what happens. Okay. We go backstage. We get out of the car. We go backstage. As soon as we get backstage, we have this ritual. We go look at what the stage is going to look like. The empty, we look at the empty stage. And we see where we're going to be standing and the mic, and it just, we just and look that, at and it. And that's a, a way of acclimating, or is that a, sort of a superstition? It's kind of both. Okay. And you hear Frank Sinatra music is on at the time when we get into the theater. Yeah, it has to be. And you hear that. Then we go backstage, and we take off our sport jackets, or suit jackets, and we hang them up. And then he sits down, unzips his knapsack, and takes out a yellow-lined... But you re- the rest of your clothes on, right? Yeah. So we, we actually get to the theater dressed. Fully go. And then he takes out his pad and starts going over his notes. Wow. And uh, he's got them laid out. We chat a little, but uh, that's his private time, and that's my private time to go over my notes. And he does the work. And then I, about seven minutes before I go on, I say to him, I'll see you later. He goes, uh, try to be funny this time, will you please? <laughs> Would you try? <laughs> that's great. Just get one laugh, please, this time. <laughs> that's cool. You know? And there's three, anywhere from two to 17,000 people that I'm going to face. Crazy man! In Israel, was seventeen thousand people show. That's a that's a huge. huge but mostly, audience. it's three thousand a night. Three thousand people so, uh, for a comic. That's huge. It's huge. It's about as much as they can stand. Be, where, where they capacity. bigger than that, they they can't see you very well. And, and there's yet, a lot to see. I mean, well, we have screens and stuff like that. So, uh, all kidding aside, one of the conversations we had a while back was... Don't ever say all kidding aside, you comedian. That's true. I'm sorry. Please. Uh, you don't want that. Uh, no, we definitely don't want it. So, kidding uh, included, we and we had a conversation about one challenge that you had 
a goal that you stuck to and you succeeded, and that is overcoming, can I use the word obesity in front of uh, 145 million people that are watching us live? Yeah. Yeah, you can say whatever you want. I was heavy. You were how, fat. You were, you were fat. So, so you were how, how fat shaming. Go ahead. See if it, see if it hurts me. Go I'm, ahead. I'm, Nobody's going to stop you. I will not sue you. you. <laughs> I won't say anything about it. Go ahead. So uh, just for, for the, for the audience, uh, this could, there's obviously humanness. We met in a bakery. You recall that? Well, let's tell them why we met. Well, uh, you owed me money. Yeah. So you, you wanted to talk to me about uh, losing weight. Correct. Yeah, that, that was the reason. And that you, was the reason. And I said to you, where do you want health, to Health, I think it was general health. General health, and you said, but it was weight was involved. Well, no, for sure. But. And you, I said, where do you want to meet? You go, Schwartz's Bakery. <laughs> and I thought that was one of the funniest things. <laughs> it was a trap. <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. A, uh, you yeah. know, it's like a, uh, a non-swimmer. Where do you want to meet? In the middle of the pool. You know, I mean, it's just, it, it was one of those things. <laughs> but you fell for it, and there you were. And I, it's the first time that I, that I heard that this was a struggle, that you... Every day's a struggle. Once you're fat, once you had that weight on, lo- losing it, losing it is easy. Anybody can lose it. Maintaining it? Maintaining it is is really hard. What does that mean? You, that, that, that you have a desire to go downstairs and grab 17 donuts? Who doesn't have that desire? You know, uh, I mean, everybody wants to eat like uh, it's no tomorrow. So, I mean, who doesn't want to lay in bed... And eat a pint of ice cream and a slice of pizza. I tell you, I tell you why I, I struggle with this. There is no way, Mark. There is no way in the world that a person could have reached the highest levels of their chosen discipline, namely a comedian that's been at, you know, again the biggest talk shows on the planet, and not have discipline. It, it just it flies in the face. And we just said Jerry, no one rests on their laurels. So the same intestinal fortitude to go over your lines. When you see that fact, donut, yeah, a lot of fat comedians, uh, you know, there are plenty of fat comedians, that's true, but and they uh, they make it fast and die young. Yeah, because the whole environment doesn't, you know, lend itself to exactly a healthy lifestyle. We lost two heavy, really heavy set comedians in the last couple of years: Ralphie May and uh, um, why am I forgetting his name now? He was actually a friend of mine, but uh, oh, John Panette. In the la- recently last couple of years. Obese guys. Tremendous occupational hazard. So funny, both of them. So couldn't lose it. Couldn't do it. So Because you can focus in one area. It doesn't mean you can focus in another. So, Everything uh, is a discipline. Each area, you have to develop its own sort of... I stopped doing a lot of things in life, but it was one thing at a time I stopped. No, I, I got that. So we try and keep us within a certain time frame. So as we, as we come down the home stretch, here's, here's two questions that I try and all, ask all my guests. And that's the following. A genie comes out of this, this, uh, purified drinking water and says, Mark, whatever you want, your wish is my command. Five years from now, Mark, where do you want to be? What, 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 if you could, if you had the magic wand, Tell me where you want. Who, uh, where am I speaking to Mark Schiff five years from now? When you turn twenty-seven, where where, where do you want to be? That's a good question. <clears throat> um, I also live a day at a time. Yeah, that I remember from our conversation, by the way. Yeah, I do live it a day at a time. I don't. I don't go ahead. But I would like to. Um, you know, it's funny. The, like they say, nobody on the deathbed says, "I wish I had another day in the office." Another day in the office made another real estate thing, or. Maybe did another performance at the uh, the Palladium, but um, 
I'd like to have my family secure, you know, living in L.A. where I can see them all the time and be with them. And because uh, when you have your kids and your wife and your family and stuff like that, it's a feast for your eyes on uh, your soul. It's beautiful, by the way. Is it, is it rare to have a, a person who's reached your level of success as a comedian and, you know, have the balance, have a family? It just the whole profession it's very tough. It's very difficult, especially when you're on the road. I've been exactly. on the road for almost 40 years. That's, it's so, brutal. I have families in different No, no, really. Obviously, know, every major about certainly yeah, has a different family. Yeah, I have a different Figured as much. religion. <laughs> um, the road destroys a lot of relationships, you know, because people just... I, I look at you and Jerry as... as very wholesome people. I think people perceive you guys. You keep it straight. Straight family. Uh, you know, one night, let me tell you a story. I was on a, I used to do cruise ships years and years ago. And I was down towards Venezuela on this cruise ship. Yep. Okay. And it's about one thirty in the morning in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of nowhere. And I'm sitting at a blackjack table on yeah. the ship playing a little blackjack. And all of a sudden, somebody taps me on the shoulder. I turn around. And it's my wife's cousin. Who? Yeah. A woman. Okay. And I say to myself, there's nowhere you can go in the world where you, you may think you're not going to bump into somebody. No, that's, no, that's true. And if I was sitting next to some blonde there playing blackjack it's around, around there in the middle of Venezuela, I was busted. And not that I, I, I wanted to do that. No, your point's well taken. But when that happened, I said, that was a gift from God. Here it is, Mark. I'm going to show you right now. What could happen? There's a GPS upstairs watching all every, the time. It's a beautiful. It's a, it's a very, very interesting and good teachable moment. That and I hung on to that moment, and I never forgot that moment. I never forgot that moment. It was, it was, it was perfect. So here's my final question before I left with her. By the way, the cousin. Yeah. Yeah, that's a different story <laughs> for another podcast, not yours. So, I, yeah. <laughs> so here's my uh, my final question be, be, before we uh, we had the ten minute standing ovation, and that is. You are, picture the scene, you're 99 years old, the, uh, a lot of candles on the cake, boom microphone is going around, you've got your significant other, kids, best friends, what, what do you want them to be saying about you? Yeah, so... Um, I, I, I always ask guests, what is that legacy? Because if you don't know what you want to say on your tombstone... Then, then what? Where's the roadmap? Okay, so what? What? Maybe two lines come to mind. Thanks for not lying to us, and thanks for making us laugh. Which are two beautiful things, because you are uh, again sincerity and trust. And I think that humor um, is a very disarming, and I think it's a it's it's a language that I've used my whole life. To really get through to people because it, it's, it's it just, does help. You know, on my tombstone, uh, which, uh, you know, when we did our will, right. I, pu I put in one line that I want on my tombstone. They can write whatever they want. Father, yeah. husband, grandfather, whatever. Do you remember what paragraph I'm in in your will? Put it under the... Yeah, they're under the, uh, what do they call it? The explicit uh, mention. <laughs> so the only line I wanted written on my tombstone, the only thing I want written on my tombstone is, I told you I was sick. That's what I want there. So I told you I was sick. That's great. So whenever anybody walks by and they read that, they are going to laugh. <laughs> That's great. 
And that's all I want. I told you I was sick. So I want to say this, Mark, and I'm not, saying, I'm, uh, not just saying this because I, I think you're a friend and a good guy. I, I sincerely um, want to say kudos. In a world where there is moral de- degradation, where anything goes, I think it speaks volumes about you, about your character, about your integrity, that you've navigated the vicissitudes of life, been true to yourself, kept the act clean, and I think, Mark, the world is a better place for the fact that Mark Schiff has been in it. Thank you for being on The Anthony Gordon Show. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it.